Um, and it's, it's funny. I have this, like, they gave me this button, this one big button, and I can, like, I won't do it, but I can turn the whole system on or off at the button. Don't so do I it. come in, Don't I click press the, the button. button. Yeah, if I hit the button, I go bye bye. That's it. Hello, and welcome to Talking to Lab with Chris Savage. I am your host, Chris Savage. I am joined, as always, by Sylvie Lubau, our producer and my co-host of this very exciting show <laughs> about entrepreneurship, marketing, and all the other things that get us talking to that. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. We have a great show for you today. We have Greg Gallant, who is the co-founder and CEO of Muckrack. Uh, Muckrack is a PR management platform that helps organizations find the right journalists to pitch and report on media coverage and prove the value of their work. Greg has a really interesting business, bootstrapped for a very long time. And the conversation today is one where we really got into nuts and bolts of um, how to scale, how to build a company via bootstrapping, why that works, dynamics of venture capital versus not, PR, how it's changed, going after new opportunities quickly, being naive, all, all our favorite topics. We covered a lot, of, a lot of exciting stuff today. You rounded the bases. Oh, full <laughs> rounding the bases. Uh, so um, here we are, and uh, we got to start the show with the classic question, Sylvie, what's got you talking too loud? Well, you know, it's funny, rounding the bases, I recently went to a Mets game and uh, pretty good seats, actually. Um, La-di-da, no big deal. NBD. Uh, I'm just realizing I never Venmoed my friend for the ticket, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> so really good seats. <laughs> really good seats. But my partner was like, I think I'm going to catch a foul ball. Like he felt pretty sure about it. And I was like, I don't know. It's kind of a bold, it's a bold statement to make. Like yeah. 20 minutes in, foul ball comes right into our section. He leaves up, he catches it. It was an exhilarating moment. It was wow. crazy. It was that crazy. Exhilarating. And also just, you know, talking to a lot about seeing baseball games live. They're wonderful. Was it wonderful? The only thing that wasn't wonderful this also has me talking too loud, was the hot dog. Nathan's, okay. I don't know what was going on, didn't deliver. That's didn't deliver, bad. it was the first dog of spring. So a little loud about that in a not so good way. Yes, well, that's too bad. You know, it's funny, um, my five-year-old Olympia really wanted to play t-ball, so she's playing t-ball. Love and it. And she had a game yesterday that we went to. They play three innings. Every kid gets to get up and bat. Last kid always hits a home run. <laughs> Uh, as determined by the parents, kids around the bases and it ends, but I will tell you, um, it was slow. It was very slow. And I kept saying, this is just like the real thing. Slow as out here. Uh, and, uh, you know, three innings, five-year-olds going, they're kind of having fun, but they're all mostly not like they're like, look, they don't ripe for meltdown. Yeah. If you were to look at this scene of children, there's probably 20 kids, I think two of them were having fun. <laughs> I think the rest of them, the pizza before, that was fun. fun. The ice cream after, that was fun. fun. When it started sprinkling rain and they all hid under one blanket, which happened, that was fun. But the actual standing in the field waiting, not fun. Even the swinging, hitting the ball, some of the kids hit the ball pretty well. They're like, good job. They're like, what, what are you talking about? They have no idea. They weren't having fun. So it felt like the real thing to me. You know, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, you know, it's interesting because they made some rule changes so that the game actually moves a lot faster. There's a pitch clock now. 
So like the next batter only has like X number of seconds to like get up to bat. And In the like, MLB? Yes. When it, was this just instituted? It's recent. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know about this. And it mo- it was you could feel it just moves so much faster. It's wild. Oh, that's great. Yeah. They needed to do that. Yeah. Anything else have you talking too loud over there? You know, I have this new setup here that we're working on. It's a big deal. Um, and so I have more lights and I have, I'm actually looking wall. at you. What'd you say? A blue wall, play, blue to, wall. play to the wall. Um, I'm looking at you through a teleprompter. So I have you, uh, your face is just, I'm just looking at your face. I don't see a camera or anything. Mama um, Mia. But it's sweet because now it's like easier to have eye contact. We think we're going to get like higher quality stuff consistently. When obviously we're doing talking too loud, I'm recording lots of videos and for internal purposes and external purposes. And so it's, it's like awesome to have the setup be really on point. And actually we have this like little series we're doing called fix my setup. And so the crew that is redoing my setup is also redoing a bunch of other people's setups. And that'll be coming out later with all the specifics of the gear we used and all that kind of stuff. Amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of getting into how things are made, let's jump into this interview with Greg about how he built and runs Muckrack. There's a lot of stuff to learn in this one. Greg, so good to see you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to see you again. How's life? What's going on these days? Yeah, life's been good. Uh, you know, I'm based in Miami now, so things are uh, starting to really heat up here and uh, <laughs> keeping uh, Literally. busy with all the new turns on the internet. Yeah. Well, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get very excited, as I do often, I can't control the volume of my voice. It has been that way since I was a child. It still happens all the time. I'm constantly waking my children up. It's a problem. But we like to start the show by asking our guests, what has them talking to them? What's got you excited these days? Yeah, I'm sure I won't be the only one to say this, but AI, all, all the latest turns in generative AI. <laughs> you heard it here first. There, there's innovation happening yeah. there. Breaking news. It's the first Breaking time. News. <laughs> That's right. But it's uh, you know obviously got big implications for the whole world we're in with uh, public relations, content, all that. So we've been uh, spending a lot of time Learning that, we've already released our first AI product and it feels like kind of one of those turning points, like back when social media first came out, when we got this company going and, and then when the iPhone first came out. So it feels like kind of one of those really pivotal shift moments where you have to rethink a lot of things in business. For people who don't know, can you tell us what is Muckrack and how did you get started? And then we'll get into you know all the parallels and things that are changing. Sure. So in a nutshell, Muckrack today is public relations software. It helps companies, both Fortune 500, startups, PR agencies, large and small, find the right journals to pitch uh, when you have a story idea to get it covered in the news. Monitor the news, you know, whenever your company's mentioned, which especially for large companies is essential. And then build reports so you can see the effectiveness of PR and see how it fits into the marketing mix. Uh, backing up to how it started, though, in, in a way, it actually all started with podcasting. When I graduated college in 2005, I was really interested in what was called RSS feeds with enclosures at the time, later became podcasting. I decided just to start a podcast. So I had this idea to interview entrepreneurs about how they got started, which, uh, you know, today is a uh, common format, uh, though, you know, lots of people have uh, great, great spins on it. 
But back uh, in 2005, no one had ever done it before. So I started uh, one of the first podcasts about entrepreneurship. I interviewed Reed Hoffman back when LinkedIn had 50 employees. Wow. Wild. Uh, first podcast yeah. he was ever on. <laughs> founder of Yelp. Got John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard Group and venture of the Index Fund. A bunch of other great entrepreneurs. One of the people I had on was Ev Williams, the founder of another podcasting company called Odeo. And uh, I was also trying to start a podcast ad network back in 2005, which in, in retrospect was over a decade too early to market. So that, <laughs> that one didn't work. But uh, I, I know about that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd, uh, I'd stayed in touch with Ev because we were both doing stuff in podcasting. We were talking about ways to work together. I saw Odeo never worked out. I watched Ev pivot Odeo to a little side project called Twitter. That led me to sign up for Twitter way early. That's how I got Act Gregory on Twitter and later got on Instagram too. Uh, so I was witnessing that early social media revolution. And I saw there was all these great people on first on Twitter, but no way to figure out like, hey, who should I follow? Who's interesting? This was back when it was like still a big deal that like even just a celebrity would be on any social media yeah. platform. So had the idea that we could launch a website where you could vote with a tweet for who's the best on Twitter. And no one had done Twitter voting back then or like viral things on Twitter. So figured we could get people to want to vote if we called an award, trying to come up with a name, thought, hey, tweets are short, so we'll call it Shorty Awards. And it also, the other constraint was it had to fit with our $8 branding budget, which is what it costs to buy a domain name on GoDaddy and no one had registered shortyawards.com yet. And we built this website in two weekends, uh, put it up, no promise in an event. Within 24 hours, Shorty Awards became the top trending term on Twitter. And then we were like, oh, shit, people are going to want to come to Oops. this thing. Yeah. And I announced, like, right after it went viral, I'm going to be like, it's going to be in two months. Because I was worried that, like, the Twitter fad would end soon enough. Because this is back in the days of, like, Friendster and MySpace. And everybody was like, oh, yeah. every social media site's a fad. Yeah. So I was like, we got to launch this thing soon so that uh, we, we get it out before the social media fad Before ends. it's over. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I knew nothing about event production. So knowing what I know now about event production, it's insane to say you're going to do an event <laughs> in two months. But we didn't know better. Isn't that the magic of being naive, of which I just love? Is like knowing what you know is like, I'm not going to do this. But back then, it's like, oh, I mean, two months seems like more than enough time, but you're not thinking about venue and food and people's travel and where they're going to stay and all these things. I love it. Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's how we got started. So we announced it. Luckily, you know, this is before the fire festival, but luckily it didn't end up <laughs> like the fire festival. <laughs> When I watched that, I was having a little PTSD. I'm like, oh, shit, that could have been us. But uh, Side note, isn't he trying to do Fire Festival too? Oh, yeah. Are you going? Well, I see yeah, you I'm going to go. Are you going to go? <laughs> if, if you're in, I'm in. Okay, good. All right. Keep going. <laughs> so we, we did that first one. Actually, the first one was in Brooklyn uh, back in, in Dumbo before, before it was cool. And we had MC Hammer there. What? Gary Vaynerchuk wow. back yeah. when Gary was still the wine library guy. Yeah. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal uh, came by video. And these oh, were wow. like, you know, there weren't that many celebrities back on, on Twitter yet. So we, we were getting like a lot of the people. And it was just the craziest two months of my life. I mean, in those two months that we, we found the venue, the sponsors, 
But what really struck me was that we got a ton of press coverage all inbound. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC all reached out to us to cover it. The Wall Street Journal reporter even came to Brooklyn to interview me. And back then, no one from Manhattan wanted to go to Brooklyn for business. <laughs> Those you know, now Brooklyn's cool. Yeah, Brooklyn's, <laughs> yes. Sylvie's a Brooklynite, so she's definitely going to tell you Brooklyn's I, cool. Yeah. Hey, I'm with you, Sylvie. But remember, like back pre-2010, pre <laughs> it was very hard to convince anyone who lived in Manhattan of that. To cross the bridge. Yeah. I still remember there was this uh, restaurant that opened up called the Brooklyn Ear in Manhattan, where the idea was that you could get food from Brooklyn in Manhattan so that Manhattanites didn't have to travel to Brooklyn to try the oh, food boy. and drinks of Brooklyn. Oh, boy. Wow. That's funny. So that, that's the era that we're in. So we get all these journalists to come to Brooklyn. They all cover it. And from launching my own stuff, like when I launched my podcast advertising business and my own podcast, it was always a struggle to get the press to cover it. And I, I saw that like, hey, the press were on it with the Shorty Awards. And as I was reflecting, I realized like, oh, all the journalists, they're using social media to figure out what to write about and to promote their work. And they were kind of like the first group of professionals doing that. You know, now every real estate broker is doing that and whatever. But back then, you know, this is like a really new thing. So I wouldn't it be cool if we launched a site where you could just see all the journalists and easily find their social profiles and see what they're putting out there. And that was version one of Muckrack. We built the site in two weeks. The name came from playing with uh, Muckraker, this, this term that Teddy Roosevelt coined for investigative journalists. And it was originally kind of derogatory. It's like, hey, you're digging through the muck to find yeah. a story. But then journalists kind of took it as a badge of honor where they were like, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is a sign that I'm actually like doing my job and I'm not just um, regurgitating press releases. So we, we took that idea of like a muck raker plus the idea of like a magazine rack or a news rack, place you could find all the journalists and, uh, you know, all the news in one place. And again, $8 branding budget. Nobody had registered it yet on GoDaddy. So we <laughs> registered it, threw it out there. It was originally free. We didn't have any business model in mind. But I was kind of of this mindset where like, hey, if we can build a website in two weeks, why bother thinking about the business model? Because if it doesn't work, we'll just move on. We've only lost two weeks. It's not like we're signing a lease for a restaurant and you know it's going to be, be a huge liability. So built it. At the same time we launched it, then we were trying like a bunch of other ideas, but we saw over the course of uh, a year, 10,000 journalists requested to be listed on Muckrack. And it became kind of like the industry standard. The New York Times was linking to it on their intranet so that journalists could see which of their colleagues were on there. And it was kind of like the watering hole for the news industry. First of all, I'm like riveted by this story and also feels very familiar in the sense of like, thinking you have a plan, but not really having a plan, like being naive as you jump into things. And then that's like kind of a superpower for getting started, right? And like making progress. So I love the story, but can you also like why? So they journalists, why did they want to be on Muckrack? Like, why did they decide that was like a good idea? Because if they're already on Twitter, is that good enough? Yeah, it was a few different things. It, it was like a market credibility. We, we haven't had and still have our own verification system that verifies the journalists in the context of what news outlet they write for and what beat they cover. So that was a big element of it. And okay. kind of similar to the shorties, you know, it's a way to like kind of get more legitimacy and get more followers and be found. 
Okay. And then soon after we layered in and what makes it very popular now is it'll automatically figure out what articles they've written and add that into a real-time portfolio. A lot of them get a friend or you know, set up their personal website or try setting it up on Squarespace. But then every time they write an article, they have to update their website. Yeah, which is super busy annoying. doing yeah. the main job. So we automate yeah. all that for them and then let them edit it. So we, we built a bunch of value for them on top of that. But initially, it. it was kind of CNBC. And then, so it was initially this free website. But being in New York at the time, I'd run into a lot of PR people. And they were all like, oh, you do muckrack? I love your site. I use it to figure out who to pitch. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, we're helping you do your job. And then I'm thinking like, wait, we've got an audience of professionals. We have great data. Uh, we built a brand. The only thing we don't have is product to sell. And this is before <laughs> SaaS was a term really like back, you know, this was like, oh, 2010. 20, 20, but I, you know, I just looked at uh, these companies that were had these reoccurring revenue models, like, like actually Hootsuite won a, a shorty award that first year and rebranded to Hootsuite at the shorties. And I was saw they had a SaaS model that was working well. And, you know, I was looking at MailChimp and FreshBooks and companies like that. We had a lot of ideas for software tools we could build for the PR community to help them find the right journalists. We're like, hey, what if we layer on a search engine to find journalists and had workflow to add them to media lists and do outreach? So, so we had all this idea for functionality we could build for the PR world. And from doing the Shorty Awards, it, Shorty Awards were always profitable, but super stressful because I'd have to first sign a venue contract obligating us to you know, spend first tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of dollars, no matter what happens, and then scramble for sponsors uh, to, to pay for it. And I was always like, shit, if we don't sell these sponsorships, like, we're going to be we're bankrupt, screwed. you know, we're, yeah, 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 we're on the hook for all this money. <laughs> yeah, each event is literally like life or life or death for the company. It's just like, exactly. If, if, if people don't show up and we don't have sponsors, we're gone. That's right. And not only that, but like, even after you sign them, it's like, when are they going to send the check? <laughs> and I'd be like waiting, you know, looking at the mail every day, like, Hey, has the check showed up? Cause I yeah. can't get the cash <laughs> to pay the venue. <laughs> So I was looking at these reoccurring business models and having not just the the revenue and the profit, but the revenue predictability seemed awesome. So I was like, hey, we've got all the makings here for a reoccurring revenue business. So let's go for it. So then in 2011, we kind of pivoted Muckrack and we rebuilt it from scratch uh, for anyone technical out there. We, We... the first version was a really hack job PHP site. So we rebuilt it from scratch in Python. We kept all the free parts free. And then we added on this uh, SaaS model. We called the first version Muckrack Pro. We've since just kind of rebranded it to, uh, to Muckrack. But um, added on the SaaS model in late. We launched it in December 2011. Though we, we got some customers on even earlier. And it's been kind of off to the races. We still have a lot of those customers that were started with us in 2011 or still customers today. That's awesome. I mean, I, and I love hearing the story of, I'm not going to call them pivots because you weren't like changing direction, but like this very rapid evolution and the, the learning, not knowing what's next. And even the simple insight of like, hey, looks like this subscription thing is working for Hootsuite. 
and MailChimp, like maybe we should do that. And similar to us too. Like when we started, like the things that we were competing with on the professional business video side were all enterprise, you know, boxes that people installed. And we're like, we could, what if we just do this subscription thing? Like that seems like this is better, right? And um, it's funny how those little decisions, it can, can feel little at the time, add up to a very big difference over the long term. Yeah, it's well said. It's the magic of compounding. Yes. Now tell me, so, I mean, that time, you know, you had one of the first podcasts on entrepreneurship. You made the Shorty Awards kind of like, you know, on a whim. You figured out like you're walking around talking to PR professionals, realizing they're using your product. Like fast forward to today, what do you think of the landscape of where we are? Like, do those same opportunities still exist for early stage entrepreneurs just to like find their way into them? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very different world now. So our, you know, our, our businesses evolved almost 300 people with Muckrack and Shorty Words is now an independent company with a five person team and still profitable and growing. So, you know, my world is extremely different than what it was at the start. Although I still try to kind of keep that mindset in mind because, you know, tech's always changing and you never know where the next thing is. But I think there's always opportunities like that. I mean, when I started my podcast in 2005, there was this feeling of like, oh, we missed the boat. Like Yahoo clearly is dominating everything. And, you know, maybe a company could get lucky and sell for, you know, 30 million to Yahoo, like Flickr did, which was kind of the top yep. social network too, yeah. at the time. So I think that there's, you know, just always opportunity. And actually this AI thing really... Uh, reminds me of what it was like. Like when we got started, I think the big shift was social media. And we just launched wafer thin ideas on the social media APIs. And then we added more and more to them and, and they evolved into really robust companies. But they started out, you know, as projects we could build in two weeks. But because the tech was so new, you can make a big splash if you're, you know, on new tech. So, you know, probably what doesn't exist today is being like, oh, I'm going to launch something on the Twitter API and go viral because people have been, you know, game, game shit at Twitter for, for 10 <laughs> years. I mean, not in a bad way, but, you know, people have optimized yeah. Oh, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or same with like SEO where like a decade ago, a lot of most companies weren't savvy about SEO. So if you knew a bit about SEO, you could really get ahead. And now it's like everyone's, you know, SEOing everything and there's cheap CMSs you can buy that have the SEO built in. So it's a lot harder to get ahead in that channel, but there are always new channels. And I think that's what's exciting now, uh, you know, about AI and generative AI, both with the APIs themselves and the plugins where we're all figuring this out in real time. But I guarantee you there'll be opportunities today where someone with very little resources will figure out how to use it in a unique way before anyone else that they're smart enough and can figure out how to build that business as they go, I'm sure we'll be looking back on today and there'll be some scrappy entrepreneur who's getting started today who has a massive company in five or 10 years because they were the ones to get ahead of it in a given industry before the incumbents do. Yeah. Tell me if this resonates for you. I feel like one of my lessons of building Wistia is I look back and sometimes like something... There's been a, a, a bunch of places where we got this right, and there's been places where we got it wrong. Where we launched something, some number of people started using it, and we decided, mm, 
I don't think this is like that valuable or I'm, I'm not sure about it. And we basically underestimated what would happen with just like continued effort on it. And so then like other places with continued efforts compounded, it's gotten really big. Does that resonate with you? That like things that can start small can grow really big, but it's, it's kind of hard to see that in the moment. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it took us, it took us several years with Muckrack just to get to a million in revenue. I mean, we pretty much bootstrapped it uh, the whole way up until last, uh, last fall. But yeah, we, it took a lot of years to get to a million of revenue. And it was hard because like the shorty awards were, were bigger than Muckrack for those years uh, still because, you know, that, that took off faster. And I had friends of mine who had like agency businesses where in their first year, they'd have more revenue and profits than we did because it's easier to get to initial scale with an agency business and just get, you know, a few clients will pay you a few hundred K a year. And then all of a sudden you have a million in revenue and you have some nice profits that you can you can take home. So those first few years of Muckrack, it was actually uh, kind of a challenge to keep ourselves motivated just because like we felt the promise, but the numbers just weren't yeah. that big to, you know, to really support um, having a bunch of money, having having kind of excess for your lifestyle. But, you know, so it was like a matter of like kind of having that faith that like this can really compound you know similar to like you know when you have like savings advice and people are like hey just put put you know a thousand dollars in your ira it'll trust me it's a good idea even if you that's all you could afford i think it's that same thing especially with software businesses where it's like as long as you can see how it can get big you got to kind of accept those first few years that you're not gonna necessarily see it in the bank account yeah it's interesting because i feel like I'm I'm glad you've had this same experience. It can be frustrating too, right? Like you launch a thing, like shouldn't everyone use this? And then a small number of people are using it, but you underestimate if you have like 500 people using a thing, that's actually a lot. And if 500 people are using a thing and they really love it, they're going to tell more people and you're going to learn from them and you can turn that into 700. And, and like, because in this moment with AI, it's so easy to make these things in a weekend or two weeks. Mm. And then I think people make it and they're like, holy crap, like this is making some money. Should I sell it? Like, or will this be differentiated or not? And it's almost like, well, it, it starts with basically no moat. But if you zero in on that use and those customers and the things that you're doing, and you stay on it for a really long time, that often can be, I think, the difference between like real success and I'm not going to call it failure, but like real success and just like flashes in the pan. And it's like just if you underestimate the size of the world, the size of these markets, then it's really easy to stop. And it's easy to think that like that AI thing that you're doing won't be differentiated. And then on the other side, if, if the people who can figure out how to stay on it, that feels to me like one of the most underrated, like misunderstood parts of entrepreneurship is like, if you can just stay on the problem, then you can, you know, you can scale it and figure it out. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And then I think that also speaks to the capital structure and how you set yourself up for success. Because I, I see a lot of people, they don't set themselves up to go after it long enough because yeah. they're like, oh, I got to raise money and I'm going to you know, rent an office and, and jack up my expenses. So now all of a sudden it's like, okay, you've raised enough money for 18 months. And if you don't show... X progress in 15 months, you're out of business. 
or even you raise a bunch of venture capital, but now, you know, the venture capitalists are on like a four-year time horizon. And for us, like four years in, we didn't have a whole lot to show for it. Maybe we would have been worth a couple million, but it would have been a great outcome. So it's like setting yourself up. It's like, I, I think both like what you said, we're seeing the promise early on so you don't give up too soon. You also have to be careful that, you know, it's not a bad idea and you don't work on a bad yes, idea. For this is a challenge. But, yes, but yes. if there are people who love it, you know, and you're seeing that grow, and that's where it's powerful to set yourself up to go after it a while. Because for us, it's been, a, with Muckrack, it's been a 13-year journey. I know you've been on a, a long journey too. And I always think about, like, if we took money even four years in and from VCs who had, like, a set timetable... And they wanted us to sell eight years in, um, you know, eight years in would be, you know, uh, about five years ago. And like, because, you know, just the way compounding works, we would have had, you know, whatever, a tenth the revenue that we have today. And because multiples expand as you get bigger, it would have been worth, you know, some yeah. tiny fraction of what yeah. it's worth today. And the only difference is, could we work on it for eight years or 13 years? And it's not like a sexy thing and it's not, you know, some brilliant idea. It's just like, how long can you work on the problem? Like, like you said. I love the way you put that. And I think that's, it's like such a misunderstood thing that like, it feels like, and I mean, you've built Muckrack in such a different way and, and Wistia is very similar in that like, we never have raised, you raised capital recently, but at scale, knowing what you want to do with it versus like searching for that problem in the early days. And it's funny, we had a bunch of competitors in the early days that raised a lot of money, and then they went out of business. After we started in 2006, so it was like 2008, 2009, 2010, a bunch of them, like, you know, the great financial crisis, I think, hit them. They couldn't get the sales that they wanted to have, like, the super rapid revenue growth. But we were just like, as they all went out of business, just got all their customers and just kept chugging along. And then as the market showed up, like, we were there at the product. And I think it's like this thing that people don't, well, actually, I should ask you the question. Like today, do you still do you still love what you do? Still love it. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been. A, I mean, to me, what's really fun about it is everyone's like they have two different things. They're either like, aren't you burnt out, mm. or aren't you bored? Mm -hmm. And I think I'm not burnt out because we never took we never took VC and went the unprofitable growth route. Because my friends who did, it's like. Every 18 months, they have to go out fundraising, which sucks. You know, you have to talk to uh, dozens of people and have them all tell you what's wrong with your business. <laughs> and then you get stuck with these random people that you meet in this very short, compressed time span. And they're now on your board. And when you're unprofitable, they have a lot of control because, you know, regardless of what it says in the legal docs, if you're like, oh, I might need this person for more cash in 12 months, you kind of got to do what they say. This is a point that people, I don't think, get. It's not commonly understood. Like this idea of they don't have control, but if you're losing money, then you need money. You're going to need them for sure. And therefore, you actually are giving up a form of control. And yes, you could, you could do something to cut costs, but it's going to be cutting people. So that's like emotionally one of the hardest things you can possibly do, especially if you believe in the vision of what you have. So it's just like this is... Go further, because this is not a thing that I think everyone understands. And this is something that like you and I share, we've done it a different way. And I think like it's helpful for folks to hear what this is like so that they understand this option. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe a good analogy would be like, let's say 
let's say you're you're 25, you can either stay in a studio apartment and pay for it yourself, or you could stay in a really opulent apartment, but your parents are going to help you with the rent. Oh, this is a good analogy. And you decide to go for the opulent apartment. Your parents don't have any legal control over you at age 25, but you need them to send that rent check next month or you're going to get evicted. So if your parents tell you to do something, you kind of got to do it, you know, or you got to move to the studio. And there's nothing wrong with living in a studio at 25, but it would kind of suck to downsize from the opulent apartment to the studio. So it's the same thing with, with the company. You know, if you're bootstrapping, yeah, you don't get the nice office. Uh, it's going to be harder to get attention. You're not going to be able to hire as experienced people early on, but you control your own destiny. And if you take money, even if you negotiate hard and you're like, hey, you know, we're doing a safe note and have board control, I can appoint five board members and you only get one board seat and it says on the docs, I don't need your approval for anything. If I'm unprofitable and you're on my board and I'm so unprofitable, I know I'm going to need another round of funding. You know, I need you, Mr. and Mrs. VC, because uh, either I'm going to need your check when I run out of money, or maybe I'll go and raise from a new VC, but that new VC is going to ask me, hey, is your current VC going to also invest in your Series B or your Series C? Because if they're not going to invest in the next round, that's a red flag because they know the business better than anyone. So they don't want to invest again. Like they must know something I don't. And then I probably don't want to invest. So you're really beholden to this investor as long as you're not profitable. The other thing is that the investor is going to push you to stay unprofitable. And that's, uh, I think, another thing people don't understand because you think like, oh, they're a finance person, they're a money person. They must want me to make a profit. But the way that it works for VCs is that they get paid a management fee based on how big their fund is. Their number one objective uh, is to be able to raise their next fund because that's what keeps them in business. I mean, they also want to make a great return long term, but their biggest pressure is always going to be, especially if they're a newer, inexperienced VC. So it's going to be, do I have enough credibility to raise my next fund? Because if I don't, I'm out of business. You know, my livelihood's gone. I got to figure out how to feed my family. So how are they going to raise the next fund? They have to show on paper that their existing investments are worth more than when they invested. So let's say they invest in your Series A and you get a $10 million valuation. If you're like, hey, I can get to profitability and then we're going to go long, you know, we're going to build this great business over five or 10 years and we're going to exit and we're all going to be rich. The VC is going to be like, um, that doesn't sound so good because there'll be no validation that your business is worth more in that five or 10 years. And I won't be able to raise my next fund because I can't go to my investors and say, hey, look, this investment's worth more than before. Whereas if you go out and get your Series B and that you get valued at 50 million in your series B, it shows I, I've already gotten a 5X. I can go to my LPs and be like, hey, look, this bigger investor validated that, that this business is now worth 5X what I invested. So I'm a genius, invest in my next fund, which I'm going to raise in three to four years after my first fund. So the incentives are inherently misaligned, not that the VCs are bad people, but they want to be successful. They want to raise their next fund from their customers, which are their investors. So it creates this tension 
which is fine if you're in the next Facebook or Google or some super fast business where the market materializes right away. But you were just like cranking up your risk when you take that VC money that if the market doesn't materialize, as you know, Chris, it sounds like what was the case with your peer companies when you were getting in the started. early days. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the time horizon. And the other thing is like the, the risk assessment where like the VC is going to be like, Hey, I'm going to invest in 10 different entrepreneurs. One of them will be the next Google. Two of them will have okay outcomes. The other seven will go to business, but that's fine. I found the next Google and that'll return my whole fund several times over and I'll be rich and my investors will be rich and I'll raise my next fund and I'll go on panels talking about how great it was working with Larry and Sergey. But for the entrepreneur, it's like, wait, I've got a one out of 10 chance of being the next Google and that'd be awesome. But I have a seven out of 10 chance of my equity being worth zero and I got to go find my next job and I'm probably unemployable because, you know, once you've been an entrepreneur, it's very hard to go and work for somebody else. So seven out of 10 chance, my life's going to kind of suck <laughs> after this. Or, you know, I can maybe have like, I don't know, an 80% chance of building a profitable business, which would be awesome. So, I mean, I personally would rather have an 80% chance of building a profitable business that'll make me millions of dollars and, you know, create great jobs for my whole team and impact an industry and, and be fulfilling work over a decade or two decades than a one in 10 chance of being the next Larry and Sergey, if that means I'm also accepting a seven out of 10 chance that I'm bankrupt. So that's what you have to be thinking about as an entrepreneur. So I'm not saying you should never take VC you know, early stages in an unprofitable business, but you just have to realize like the amount of risk you're taking and you have to assess the market and be really confident that like your market is going to develop in the next like one to two to maybe three years and not longer. And that you're going to have like this huge multi-billion dollar outcome. Cause in the middle, you know, if you think like, oh, it's going to only be a 50 or hundred million dollar business. Like that'd be awesome to have, but you're forgoing that option when you take VC. I think that was perfectly explained. And I hope that folks who are listening to this who are, you know, considering raising money or figuring out how to start their business or digging into AI, really like think deeply about that and look at what the options are. Cause like also if you build a business that is profitable or actually has revenue, you always have the option if you want to go faster to raise money. But if you don't go that approach and you're losing from the beginning while you're just searching, I think your point of like, hey, it's one in 10 or one in 20 even um, at like massive success, but like understand what the what the percentage is of failure, which is pretty high. Okay. I want to go back to um, PR and brand. And I, I kind of want to set this up around, you know, the other thing that's happened with AI, right, is like, it's changing search. We know that. Google just released their announcement yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, on like, hey, we're not, no surprise, we're going to have generative AI results in search, which means basically everything above the fold is not going to be links to your site. It's going to be answers that they're sourcing from all the content they've seen. This is one example of how things are changing. Um, we know that advertising has gotten much more expensive and obfuscated. It's harder to see what people are searching for. This is all these things that are making it harder to grow, more expensive. The changes with iOS and the privacy changes there that have made Facebook advertising less effective. And so when I look at all of this, what I see is that in the future, 
brand is going to be much more important than it's been. It's been important, but like it's going to be more important. You need people to actually search for your company directly. They need to know what your company does generally at the highest level. They have to have some affinity for it. They need to have a connection to it. And that also to me seems like it's going to make PR more important. Do you agree with that? Do you think that that's like the world we're getting into is a world where brand is more important, PR is more important, you know, customer experience is more important, the things that actually generate word of mouth? 100%. I think early on, it was like these channels, you could hack it and forgo having a brand. And now, like you said, people are going to be looking for that brand, you know, when they're searching or, or, or seeing things in social the other thing that's really powerful about earned media is there are a lot of things you can sell to people that they don't know they need. I think one of the best case studies is Airbnb and, and Bill Gurley, the famed investor from Benchmark, who is one of their biggest investors, had a great tweet talking about how they really built the whole business on uh, earned media. Because before Airbnb came around, no one woke up and they're like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to travel. Let me Google like stranger's house I can stay in. <laughs> it wasn't a category. So there was no SEO to be had. There was no intent. But when you got this idea out, like, hey, there's a trusted way you could rent a guest bedroom really cheap and be with an awesome host with trusted reviews or rent out a whole home. But, you know, in a way that's much more elegant than what was before, it, which was kind of doing a sketchy arrangement over Craigslist. It obviously worked, and now Airbnb's uh, you know at a huge scale and a profitable company, uh, and now people know to seek it out. But that Airbnb brand really matters because anyone could build a marketplace tomorrow to find someone, or you could still find an apartment to rent on uh, a number of their competitors or even Craigslist. But the Airbnb brand is you know it's almost I mean it's that. Even if you weren't using Airbnb, it's like Xerox. Like you're like, oh, I'm staying at an Airbnb. Not like, oh, I used Airbnb Corporation to find the place I'm going to stay. And that was all built through Earn Media because a new idea, they could reach out to journalists, every market they went to, tell the story, et cetera. And you know, now the universe of Earn Media people you know, that PR has to think about has expanded from just journalists. We've expanded Muckrack from just journalists to include podcasters like yourself, uh, YouTubers, Substack writers, etc. So people are going to be getting information in a whole lot of different ways. So I think that's going to be very important. The other thing is that, you know, I think we're going to have like a new, just like we had SEO, I think we're going to have like AIEO or AIO. We got to figure out what the AIEO. is. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you're going to ask this, you know, when you ask AI, like, hey, what's yeah. What's the best software to host my video on? Yeah. Like it's just getting chained on all the same shit that Google indexed. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to, people are going to find ways to influence the AI. So I don't know exactly how all that's going to play out because it's so new. I mean, you know, I don't know when this recording is going to be posted, but it was like last night that everybody was posting those screenshots of uh, the Google Bard results and the, you know, taking over the SEO space. But I guarantee you the second there's some new, new technology way of finding information, marketers are going to figure out and, and you know, going to figure out how to insert themselves there. And I think the public relations and people, some marketers, I mean, essentially public relations and earned media, are the same thing, you know, it's just like yeah. 
any media you get that you're not paying for. And it kind of gets less attention because it's like less mathy and generally gets less budgets and it's harder to prove the ROI. But I think the ROI is much more powerful because it's that earned media that really builds brands, that tells the story. I mean, even OpenAI, right? Sam Altman, the OpenAI founder, he, he um, tweeted like, I've been telling all my startups they have to have, you know, viral loops and good SEO. And yet OpenAI had none of that. And it's the fastest growing company ever. And it's earned media, right? It's everyone tweeting about, writing about, telling their friends, like, look how amazing this is. So there's like that big element where people kind of don't have their eyes open to it, but earned media PR is really the fastest way to build a brand. Yeah. And I think it's like that earned media word of mouth. It feels mystical or something. It's like, well, how, how will I possibly do this? Like, how can I get more of it? Or I've talked to entrepreneurs who are afraid, like they're getting it and they're like, well, how, how will I continue to get it? And in my experience, it's, it's basically like when we're getting a lot of it, when it's really working, it's like, you're actually doing remarkable things or you're doing things that are indicative of a larger trend. And maybe you can just talk for a moment about that, but like, you know, PR is and earn media, you know, getting someone writing about you on Twitter or in a mentioning a podcast or writing about you in the New York Times, like usually that's not just because of the thing you did is so interesting. That could be it, but that's like the exception. It's often because you're doing something that's interesting that's indicative of a larger macro level trend, right? Like, you know, all these companies are bootstrapping and they're ending up successful. That's a story that is relevant to anyone who's considering how they should fund their company, right? So can you just help us understand like how that really works? Like why do people write stories about some things and not others? Because when it's your thing, it can feel like, of course it's so important, but like, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a great point. And we see that's the biggest challenge in PR, both for entrepreneurs and also for corporate executives at Fortune 500s, where everyone's like, I built this thing. It's so great. The world should want to cover it, you know, and then, hey, PR person or hey, journalist, look at this wonderful thing I did, go write about it. But you have to remember like the journalist is waking up every morning and I, I got to write about something that readers care about. We survey journalists every year. We have the state of journalism survey that is free for anyone who wants to download it. And the biggest thing that they say that makes them want to write about a story is it can be connected to a larger trend. And, you know, if you think about it, when you read the news, just look at it, how many things are just like crazy one-offs, look at this thing, look at that thing. Most things are like on a big trend, you know, interest rates are rising, war in Ukraine during the pandemic, remote work, now it's returned to office. Like when you start thinking about that, you realize that most news is tied to a big trend because people want to read about the big trends and the big trends are important. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're trends for a reason. You know, this is how society is shifting. People want to read about that. So you're, you know, you have to realize like the journalists, they don't get just to write about whatever they want. They have to write about things readers are interested in, which are connected to these trends. So you have to think, how's my story connected to the trend? So maybe you've worked on your, you know, your new SaaS app that uses AI to make you the perfect uh, cocktail recipe. And you're like, this is so cool. You know, it's a new cocktail app. Well, cocktail apps aren't a trend. But let's go back to it. You know, well, it's AI. AI is a trend. So do you want to talk about how AI is going to revolutionize drinking in the cocktail? That could be a fun story. It could be a trend on 
you know, the fact that you're bootstrapping and interest rates going up is a big trend and everyone knows, well, interest rates are up. So it's harder to raise money. And you found this great way to bootstrap because you're using AI to write some of the code. So it cut down your programming costs. Like that's the story now. Everybody wants to write about that. You're doing it remotely. You started your company. You don't have an office. Remote works a trend. Or you decide that for this app, everyone needs to be in the office because we're going to mix all the cocktails. Return to work is also a trend. Maybe also, you know, you're a um, entrepreneur with an unusual background. Um, you you immigrated here. You're from a minority group, underrepresented in entrepreneurship. That's a trend that people want to write stories about. So you have to look at all these different aspects and uh, figure out what the story is. Where I was once helping this entrepreneur out. She was an engineer, I think at Rent the Runway, and started her own fashion tech company. She was pitching journalists, but she was like embarrassed that she wasn't big enough to have a PR person. So she started by emailing these journalists without identifying herself as being the founder, did a very generic pitch, like, we've got this cool new fashion tech technology. No one responded. So she was asking me like, hey, no one responded. What's wrong? You know, what, what's up? There's no, is my story not interesting? So I looked at her pitch. I was like, just be honest and make it like you were talking to another person. <laughs> she redid the pitch and she's just like, hey, I'm an engineer. I used to work around the money. First of all, you know, female engineers, especially back then, very underrepresented. Also, journalists love hearing from entrepreneurs because they're always getting pitched by PR people. And most of our customers are professional PR people and they're very good at their job. And most of the time it is appropriate. But if you're an entrepreneur with no money, like that's cool. Like the journalists like hearing from the scrappy entrepreneur and, and like knowing they'll get access to that person. So she has revamped the pitch to just be honest and just be like, hey, I'm this former engineer starting my own fashion tech company and it does this. And she got like 50% response rate off of 10 journalists and got plenty of press after that. So it's often like you just got to kind of step back and realize like, what am I doing that connects to the big trends? What's unusual and unique and how will my pitch stand out? Love that. That's such a, such a great example. And I, if you're listening and you have not pitched your story, that's, that's how to do it. Okay. Talking about pitching stories and <laughs> episodes, let's make some content right now. Uh, can we do like a quick shorty awards? of the tiniest or the most innovative or impactful things in your apartment and life right now? <laughs> That's a great, uh, great question. So <laughs> tiny, most innovative things. I've got my, um, I've both got my oversized muckrack mug, but also I love this Cactiki uh, water bottle where it tells you the, uh, how far you are in your hydration for the day. Mm. So it keeps you on track for two liters a day. It's also perfectly sized to fit in a cup holder in an airplane or a car. Hmm. Whereas like, I like those like Nalgene hiking water bottles when I go hiking, but then like, if you take it anywhere else, you don't know where to fit it and you have to <laughs> unscrew it. That's very so true. this is, this has been a huge one. Uh, how many do you want? I can keep going. What about the, what's the tiniest, most innovative thing about living in um, Miami that deserves a shorty award? I'm really into cycling. It's a great, great cycling scene. So I'd say cycling in January is probably the, the biggest highlight of uh, Miami for me. 
That's great. Those are great examples. And I mean, it seems like the bottle and the bike also probably go together. So, uh, <laughs> all about staying hydrated. Yeah. Um, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people connect with you to learn more? So on Twitter and Instagram, I'm just at Gregory. So easy Lucky to find dog. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, LinkedIn, you can find me. I think my username is Gallant, or you, but you just search Greg Gallant. There aren't that many of us. Just got on Blue Sky, but I wasn't on Blue Sky early enough to get at Gregory. So I'm mm. uh, at Gallant with one L. Uh, and then you can check out Muckrack, of course, uh, M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K for anyone listening. And I've got a lot of content up on there. We do a lot of webinars with journalists talking about what they want. Uh, I think, am I missing any obscure social networks? Uh, <laughs> I'm still on Snapchat, I think, but I'm posting No TikTok? You don't have a TikTok? <laughs> you know what? I'm really late to the TikTok game. Uh, although we were, we actually had Musical.ly, the predecessor of TikTok, kind of debuted a lot of their new stuff at the shorty words back in the day oh wow uh and i could i'm sure i could have asked for equity and gotten some but this is oh, why i would on. be a bad investor i didn't yeah. get any equity of that, <laughs> so i'm gonna stick to being an operator there you go um greg good to see you thank you for coming on the show thank you for sharing the story and i hope to see you soon Yeah, it's funny. I didn't expect that in this conversation that we would go so deep on entrepreneurship and the difference really between bootstrapping versus raising money. But I think I just think because... I think this is the first time I really understood it. Yeah, The apartment really? analogy crystallized Perfect. so much for me. I was like, oh. Yeah. 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 And it's visceral, that feeling, mm-hmm. when he was talking about like, so you let's imagine you have the palatial apartment you can't afford by yourself. And now you have to give it up. Pretty hard, pretty hard to do it. Not impossible. And I think that's, it's funny. I remember once we did the buyback, I remember a friend of mine asked me, he's like, hey, did you have to do this? Like, why'd you do this? Why? Like, couldn't you have just done nothing and kept running the business the way you wanted to run it? And I was like, you know, I think a big part of this is like psychological. It's Mm -hmm. if we know that we actually have control, if we know that we're focused on the long term, if we know that we're going to be forced to be profitable, if we know all of these things, I'm going to make better decisions. I'm going to be happier. And ultimately, that's actually really important to match like you as a founder to the business you're trying to build. And that psychological barrier is real. And I think we underestimate that and we underestimate setting it up for that. We underestimate compounding. We underestimate if you have something working what that really means in terms of how many people could use it and how big it could get. And so it was fun to get into all that stuff with Greg. And I'm, I'm glad it was, he was able to explain in a way that like, it really made sense. Totally. I think the other thing that was wild about this interview is just thinking about like the early days of Muckrack and the Shorty Awards and almost kind of like backing into a product. Like it seemed like they had the brand, they had the Shorty Awards that was kind of taking off. And then like... Greg was saying that he heard from other PR folks that like they were using Muckrack in a really specific way. And we hear a lot of people who come on the show and talk about like product first and like not brand first. And this was, I don't know, it was just interesting to hear the flip side. It's also just the specifics of finding your way 
mm-hmm. to an opportunity. I mean, it could be finding your way to your, the right career. It could be finding your way to making a band. Like it could be almost anything. And I think we underestimate the serendipity and the fast learning that comes from being naive and just trying things. And, you know, it's like perfect is the enemy of, of done is like the, also what you think about is like, you try to come up with it. And I'm, I'm, we certainly made that mistake in the early days of Wistia. Like, oh, well, yeah, we're going to make this incredible, you know, website. It's going to have all these artists on it. They're going to be a job board. We're going to monetize the job board. The job board is going to let you search in different areas and different, all this, all this crazy stuff was the stuff pre Wistia. It was so complicated. And we had to convince ourselves that this really complicated, really specific idea was going to be the secret to building a big business. And then when it hit reality, it was like, it's all bad. It was all a bad idea. But very quickly, we found our way to things that worked just by trying them. And mm-hmm. I think that that's just really underestimated. And also often why the advice that you hear for startups is like, just try, just start, just try. Because no one knows it's going to work until you're actually doing it and you're learning. And then can you actually hear the learning and change and pivot and grow and scale? And I think you can, but you have to have a, a system and a business and a structure that actually allows you to stay on the problem. So anyway, yeah, it's fun to talk about that. I'm glad we got that out there. And like every episode of Talking Too Loud, if you like the show, if you're learning something, if you have suggestions for us about guests or topics you want us to cover, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can always email us at ttlpod at wistia.com. Or you can find Sylvia and I directly on Twitter. I am C Savage on Twitter. Sylvia is Give Me the Loot. Um, we're both on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn, Chris Savage. Lots of conversations happening there. Um, and don't forget to rate and review the show if you like it. That's always helpful. Always. Did I miss anything, Sylvie? Got it all. Great. Well, good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we'll talk to you soon. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.